Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Hello, dress listeners. Uh, today, we are joined by a very special guest, and we must say fellow FIT alum, Cass. Our guest today is Jessica Pusher. And correct me if I'm wrong, Cass, but I believe Jessica is the first collections manager that we have ever had on the show. And something that you yourself have dabbled in a little bit, right? Yeah. So one of my very first jobs out of grad school was managing a 10,000-piece dress and textile collections with pieces from throughout history and around the world. And I think we've talked about it a couple times on the show. But it's nothing compared to the collection Jessica oversees. She is the collections manager for the Chicago History Museum for their dress and fashion collection. She's something she's been doing for the past seven years. And she joins us to share the multifaceted aspects of her incredible job, which involves overseeing and taking care of a dress collection April of some 50,000 objects. And we are so pleased to have her with us today. Jessica, welcome to Dressed. Jessica, welcome to Dressed. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here on your podcast. I know it's been so fun to kind of be in touch with you about this episode the last month or so, because I haven't really talked to you since we graduated in 2012. Oh, so long ago. <laughs> it hurts to think about how much time has passed because it literally <laughs> feels like it was a blink of the eye you know, when we were last in graduate school. Oh, my walking goodness. Walking down Whole Foods, I getting know, dinner, shoving it in our faces before <laughs> class. The stress and the fun of it all. Oh, FIT. <laughs> <laughs> but you've done incredibly well since we've we've parted ways. You're the, now the costume collections manager at the Chicago History Museum. And you just happen to be, I believe, the first collections manager we have had on this show. I think. I could be wrong. You know, people have different jobs throughout their careers. But you are currently a collections manager of a very prestigious collection. And I would love... If because of this, um, if you could please define briefly, you know, what a collection manager is. What is a collection manager? So it's relatively a newer career in museums. Prior to, you know, probably I would say the last 30 or 40 years, my position would have been known as like an assistant curator. There's also curators of collections is another term that other museums will use. It's not a universal institution used across all museums. So my main job is the physical care of the objects in the collection. So where are they stored? How are they stored? You know, inventorying, cataloging, um, records management, all of those things are what I do. So if in a my, how I joke about it at my museum is if you can wear it, I take care of it. So there's another collections manager who takes care of decorative industrial arts, paintings and sculptures. So pretty much if you can wear it on your body, 
it's in my collection. If you can't, then she takes care of it. That's how we <laughs> kind of divide it up. And then the archivists, there's archivists for our photographic collection and for our records and manuscripts. And then there's librarians who take care of published books. So those are the kind of different people within our institution that take care of the objects. Another term to kind of better explain what I do even to say my own father is that I am a kind of a librarian of clothing. That's another way of putting it. Yeah, so whereas our the curator I work with, she is really responsible for telling the story of the objects. My job is their physical care and well-being and keeping track of everything. So you manage this incredible collection, an estimated 50,000 pieces. So no small feat what you do. And I think this spans, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, early colonial America all the way to the present day. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about this incredible collection at the Chicago History Museum and um, what goes into your job, maybe your daily job as its keeper? Yeah, so I will start with kind of the history of this collection and being that I work at the History Museum, I can't talk about anything without going all the way back to the very beginning, because that's just how we do it there. So the Chicago Historical Society is actually who I work for. It's actually um, the institution. We rebranded it to the Chicago History Museum, I believe in 2006. And it was, it is Chicago's oldest cultural institution. It was founded in 1856 to foster an understanding and appreciation of history and culture in Chicago. And Chicago at that time was still a very young city. It had just been incorporated as a town in 1833 and as a city in 1837. So within about 20 years, the Historical Society had been founded. And we had a great collection the historical society mostly collects books and records and we had some really great things from Lincoln at that time period but in 1871 the great Chicago fire happened and like most places here in Chicago the historical society was completely burnt down and yes (laughs) only a tiny few things survived and we rebuilt the collection and we rebuilt the building and It pretty much remained a library, just collecting records and manuscripts until 1920 when the Historical Society bought the collection of Charles F. Gunther, who was a candy maker here in Chicago. And he was kind of a a fun guy. He had um, gone out and assembled his own American history collection. So he would go out and collect especially war memorabilia. So he would go out and find Civil War veterans and buy flags, uniforms, anything he could off of them. And he also bought Libby Prison, which was a um, Confederate prison and bought the entire building and reassembled it in Chicago stone by stone. And that was his museum. And then he had passed away and the museum did not purchase the actual building, the, the prison, but we purchased a good portion of his collection. And in that collection started what we call our 3D museum collection. So actual objects, not just books and papers. So from that, we got the first seeds of the costume collection. 
what he had mostly collected were, you know, some early pieces from George Washington, um, John Adams, so really early American figures, and a lot of Lincoln materials as well. So that was really how the collection started. And in 1932, we hired our first costume curator, Phyllis Healy, and she was in that position for 40 years. So she didn't wow. retire until, the 19, until 1972. <laughs> and she really kicked things off. And she, at that point, was collecting American and European, especially European fashions from prominent Chicago families. So that was, that's how we really kicked off the costume collection. So this it's almost 2021, but it's really our costume collection has only been in existence 100 years. So it's kind of exciting. And we've collected a lot of things since then. And so what is kind of like a typical day in your in your world? I need, I'm sure things change daily, but is there kind of a general idea? You Can you give us kind of a general idea about what you do? Yeah. And part of why I like my job so much is I do something different every single day. And because I like to get up and move and I don't like to just sit around and write. This is the perfect job for me. So it really depends on what kind of projects I'm working on. Um, it could be a huge inventorying project where I might be downstairs opening boxes, photographing things, you know, recording information. It could be sitting at my desk and inputting massive quantities of data, you know, into the computer. This past six months. Um, I've been mostly doing that from home is just updating catalog records. So there's a lot of that. You know, if we're working on an exhibit, I could be helping doing installations. I could be, you know, finding objects, going to our offsite locations. I give tours. I pull objects for research visits. We have a lot of, you know, curators and scholars from around the world who come to the museum to look at things for possible inclusion into other exhibits at other institutions. So it's, it's up and down. It's all around. I also help out with cleaning exhibits, pest control, making sure there's no leaks or water intrusion on anything. So moving things, helping move large objects. We have a lot of objects, but we don't have a very large staff. So I will get pulled in for various other things, paintings, moving large paintings, cars, carriages, you know, all of those different things. I will get pulled into. Sometimes it's getting up on a very tall ladder to vacuum an enormous neon sign, you know. <laughs> so it just changes every day. And I like that because I like to do new things and get up and get down and move around. So I really enjoy that aspect of my job. And I follow you on Instagram and our listeners will probably as well after hearing this, but you're also constantly posting images of things that you're cataloging. And can you tell us a little bit more about that process? Yes. So when I started, my boss at the time said, all right, start inventorying. And I was like, where should I start? And she said, wherever. And I said, oh, goodness. <laughs> and so I started with our hanging racks. So we have, and I can say this with authority because between me, my past curator, Pedro Slinkard, and numerous, numerous wonderful interns went through and inventoried everything. So we have 268 movable racks of clothing with over 5,000 objects on them. And our data management system we upgraded it, and now it gave us the capability of attaching images of those objects digitally. 
So we needed to take pictures of everything. So we went through and renumbered all of the racks, cataloged everything that was on there. And when I say that, it's pretty much taking an inventory sheet and going one by one, recording the accession number, which is the individual number given to objects, recording what that number is on what rack, taking a photograph of it and doing that 5,000 times. And then taking all of that information and putting it into the computer because a big part of um, my collection is stored off-site in a facility that doesn't have internet connectivity because it is underground. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have to do it all by hand. And it's a huge, huge area. So there's not enough cords in the world to like bring a, you know, a laptop there anyway. So, and it took several years just to do that. Now that I'm done with everything that's on a hanging rack, I'm working on things in a box. So that actually takes more time. So things that are stored in boxes are typically things that are heavily beaded, that are too fragile to be stored on a hanger. Things that are usually stored on hangers would be wool suits, uniforms, things that actually would be crushed if you laid them down. You know, So in boxes are typically older objects and things that are more delicate. And so pulling those boxes out one by one, taking them to a table, opening them up, seeing what's in there, recording the information, and then putting the ensemble on a mannequin and then photographing it. So it's a very slow process, but you discover the most amazing things in the world because some yeah. of these pieces... It's like Christmas. Yeah. Well, in some of these things, somebody boxed up in maybe 1983 and nobody has gone to look for it. Or maybe we didn't even realize we had it. Oh my goodness, how wonderful. Opening this thing. And it's like, what? <laughs> that happens to me a lot. And it's the best thing in the world. And I learn so much every time I open a box. And just because you go to school and you go to graduate school and this and that, you don't know everything. And when you have the um, actual objects in front of you and you can see them and you can compare them to either other designers of the time or you can the reference material and you know because the collection is so vast I've been able to create these wonderful opportunities when we have college students come through to compare things and show them like you know this designer from the 80s is referencing this design from the 40s which is really a takeoff from a dress from the 1890s you know so that's been really incredible. And to see the different types of fabrics and all the things you kind of learned about in grad school in real life right in front of you is just so incredible. Ugh. And construction too, how things are made, actually being able to look inside the garments. I mean, what an incredible experience. Well, and how things fall apart and how the mistakes made in the dyes or the construction or the weaving or all of those things or you know how people spilled things or how sweat eats away at things like you can see all of that when you look at the object which to me makes it works in my brain so much better like it explains things to me than just reading it and i think a lot of kids and i say kids these are college students but a lot of students who are in these types of programs are visual learners and are more tactile learners. And 
really benefit from seeing the objects in person than just reading about it or hearing a lecture on it. It's so important to have just, especially for, you know, future designers, you need to know what an amazing silk designed and woven, you know, in Italy or, you know, France looks like, feels like, drapes like compared to, you know, a substandard one that you might be, you know, only able to get at a Joann's where you're from or something like that. I think it's just so important to see that. Yeah. And that fact that so many of these garments obviously were actually worn and used, and you've talked about the stains and the, you know, the sweat stains. These are imprints of actual lived experiences that you're not going to actually get from a book, from reading about it or from fashion plates. And so, and you obviously, you have so many stories about this collection. You've really been in there for the past seven years. And when we get back from a sponsor break, we're going to get a little bit more specific. Welcome back, Dress listeners. Okay, Jessica, before we get into some of these specific stories and objects from throughout this wonderful collection, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about Chicago's historical significance as a fashion center. Because I think it's known, but it's perhaps not as well known as New York's fashion history, perhaps. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what makes the city so special. Yes, complicated question. So let's dig into this. So... Chicago has always really been known as a center for retail. And one of the first big retailers here in Chicago was Marshall Field and Co. And they had a start back in the 1850s. Potter Palmer, who was a real big wealthy man here in Chicago, actually started it and then later sold it to Marshall Field and another gentleman named Levi Letter. And they took it over. And once again, their original store was burnt down in the Great Chicago Fire, like just about everything else was, but they were able to save a huge amount of their goods before the fire burnt down their building. So they were actually able to reopen the store within just a few weeks and then had a a new building within a few months. So because Chicago really is in the center of the United States, we had cheap, reliable water travel. We have highways, airplanes, trains, you know, the trains, especially in the, you know, the first half of the 20th century, almost all the train companies had a terminal in Chicago. And there was, a, I was reading a Women's Wear Daily from, I think, 1920 or 1930, that half of the population of the United States was an overnight train ride from Chicago. So you had so many people living around to the east, the west, the north, the south that could get to Chicago. And the best part was that Chicago could get anything out to those people. So the retail, so besides actual physical retail, mail order was doing incredible business here. So uh, Montgomery Ward, Sears and Roebuck, were huge corporations that were here in Chicago. And because of all of, you know, all of our reliable transportation in and out of Chicago, we're moving upwards of like $400 million a year in products, like in the 20s. And they were saying, I, once again, it was in a Women's Wear Daily article that a million and a half people were shopping in Chicago on an average week through the mail. 
you know, that's just incredible to think about. So Chicago had these, besides mail order, we had very, very wealthy people here in Chicago making lots of money in farming, animals, you know, stocks. The McCormick family made a lot of money creating a mechanical reaper, you know, to go through and, you know, harvest your crops. So they made a lot of money doing that. And we had all of this industry here in Chicago. And so we had these wealthy heiresses from Chicago going to Europe to buy their clothing or going to Europe to find a husband (laughs) and bringing back this clothing to Chicago. And there's always been this joke that Chicago women were always in competition with the women of New York City. We had the money. They were making just as much money here as the wealthy industrial wives were in um, New York City. So when they went over to Europe to buy their clothes, they were kind of in competition. Oh, she bought that dress? Well, I'll also buy that dress, but in a different color and with more lace or with more rhinestones. So there was always this competition to bring and to represent Chicago and to be just as refined and well-heeled and you know, lavish in their dress in Chicago as the women in New York City were. And because of that, we had these boutiques here in Chicago spring up that were importing a huge amount of clothes into Chicago. So Martha Weathered, Millie B. Oppenheimer, Stanley Korshak's, Bloom's Vogue were all early boutiques that were importers of fashion. You know, places like Marshall Fields, had their own workshops where they would create their own hats and clothing. They also were importing clothes. In 1941, they opened the 28 shop, which was a high-end women's boutique that was importing, well, would have been importing from Europe, but of course, World War II had happened at that point, so they were (laughs) representing a lot of American designers. But as soon as World War II ended, then they started, you know, Dior was one of the first designers that they got in there after the war. And he actually came to Chicago, I think in 48, very soon after he started, because the Chicago market, Marshall Fields had brought him in and it was, people were buying up his clothes here. And so he, of course he came here, but we also had, and this is an overlooked history of Chicago, a large manufacturing of women's apparel here, especially wash dresses. So wash dresses are just a simple dress that you can wash. Um, A house dress is maybe a a better term for it, but they were called wash dresses. And in women's wear daily, and like I was saying, you know, turn of the century, 20s, 30s, 40s, there was a Chicago section. So they would tell you about what's going on in the Chicago markets and when their market days would be. Because you have to imagine if you owned a store in Missouri or Kansas, Iowa, you know, New Mexico, Arizona, or something like that, you would probably come to Chicago to buy your wholesale garments to take back to retail to, you know, your store in a state to the west or south or things like that. So, you know, there was a huge manufacturing sector here. Also, we had places from New York City that were manufacturing had, they had full-time showrooms here as well. So there was a large market in Chicago for, for buyers and for manufacturing. And then it really died off after World War II, the manufacturing, like all American manufacturing, really slowed down and died off. And unfortunately... Because 
the ready to wear business and ready to wear clothing was not seen as something that we collect. Most you know, fashion collections just didn't collect the everyday clothing because you know you don't think that's special. I would never think about collecting the yoga pants I currently have on, but at some point somebody's going to you know you're you're going exactly. to want them in the collection. <laughs> you're going to want to represent the everyday person. So we don't have quite as much of that. We did just have two house dresses represented in our, our past costume exhibit, silver screen to mainstream, and. Those were fabulous. People really reacted strongly to them when they saw them. I think a lot of people remember their grandmothers, mothers, great-grandmothers in dresses like those. Those dresses are hard to pinpoint because they usually don't have labels in them or somebody cut them out or they've been altered. But, you know, through Montgomery Wards and Sears and Roebuck, thousands and thousands of those dresses were sold all over the country. So as time went on post-World War II, more and more retail moved into Chicago. So we have Saks Fifth Avenue, we have Neiman Marcus, we have Bloomingdale's, we have Ultima, we have iMagnon. We have all of these companies coming into Chicago. And then in the 70s, there was this resurgence of Chicago designers here in Chicago. There was an apparel center um, here. I think it started in like 77. They all kind of banded together and they had, I think like 800 showrooms, thousands and thousands of collections every year that they were showing. Smaller boutiques like Chanel and I mean Versace opened one of his first outside of Italy here in Chicago. So the Magnificent Mile, Michigan Avenue, um, really came to be informed in the 70s and became the shopping destination for people all over the country. My mom, who was from Denver, she had a friend from college who came out here to Chicago. And in the 80s, she came out here. And of course, they had to go shopping. And they had to go to Water Tower Place because that was like the first vertical mall <laughs> In America, where you and, and there were all these high-end stores, and it was just you know escalators, and it was just so posh, um, and it was just the place to come and shop, and it still is. Of course, now with the internet, you don't have to physically go somewhere, travel from a different state to go and purchase a store. I mean, people still definitely do that. We definitely have tourists from you know all over the world and all over the country who come to Chicago just to shop, but it's with retail changing so much as it is currently, um, it'll be interesting to see how that changes. Yes, yeah, so Chicago has this incredibly rich fashion history, as you just attested to. I had no idea about it being a manufacturing center, although that makes perfect sense when you start to think about it. Um, and it actually, the city has some pretty incredible fashion history connections with specific designers. And in, in particular, I would love if you could tell us about Mamboucher and Charles James, uh, who are, you know, quite famous fashion designers, their relationship with Chicago. And then about your incredible collection that includes many works by these two designers. I actually think they've each had exhibitions at the Chicago History Museum. Yes, they definitely have. So let's start with... So, Maine Russo Bakker was <laughs> born on the west side I of Chicago. Love that. <laughs> um, I know, in 1890. And um, 
he grew up here in Chicago. He went to school here. And his first job, I think, was in 1909. And he worked in the complaints department of Sears and Roebuck. When they misfilled a mail order and got complaints, he would have to apologize and correct that. And he said that he later credited that job for teaching him good customer relations and solid business practices. He never lived in Chicago again. Um, after that, you know, he entered in World War One. He lived in New York City, and then he went over to Europe during World War One. And then, you know, he became the editor of, you know, Vogue Paris and stayed in Paris. But he, his family was still here, his mother and his sister. And so he would come back here quite often. And two of our earliest Man Boucher pieces were actually donated by him in 1968. And they're from 1937. So they're from the same time period when he created the wedding dress in um, Trousseau for Wallace Simpson. And he donated them to us. And they're donated by, as the, they say, Mr. Main Bacher. That's you know, who donated <laughs> it to him. It's uh, it's an interesting history. You know, he actually came back in 1949 and designed the nursing uniforms for the Passavant Memorial Hospital School of Nursing, and then he did that because there was a shortage of nurses. You know, after World War II, and much like he did with the waves, he designed their uniforms, you know, donated that, the design for them. So the lure was come be a wave, volunteer with the waves, or go into nursing school and you too can wear a Mamboche design uniform <laughs> because his designs were so expensive. You know, the very, very top people could afford his things. So the fact that he was designing these uniforms um, to be worn by the average person, I mean, was just, it was such a great recruiting tool. And I believe that um, 51 students from 11 states enrolled in the first year of the Passivant um, School of Nursing having these uniforms. So it was just the best thing. And he would come back to Chicago and speak at schools. And he was like a rock star. And he was a very debonair, very quiet, but very humble, very Chicago person. So, um, you know, and he was Midwestern. So, you know, even though he was Mamboche, he was still Mainbacher from the West Side. So it's a great story. And we did that exhibit. Petra Slinkard was the curator in that, and that ran from October of 2016 to August 2017. And you can go to the website and see all of the ensembles. We have 32 ensembles um, designed by Mamboche, and that includes Girl Scout uniforms that he Love designed, <laughs> Waves uniforms, the Passive Hunt Hospital uniform, as well as, you know, extremely expensive, you know, evening capes of fur and evening dresses. So the whole collection is there. So, And he was an haute couturier, right? In France. Yes, he was the first the American couturier. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I just like, I just like, you know, the guy's name is Maine Bacher, but we call him Memboche. It's like Target and Target. Exactly. It's just a little bit fancier and it's a little bit French. And so when we talk about the man, the way I was told to do it and the way 
that makes sense to me is to call him Maine Bakker. But when you're talking about the Katori, the designs, the design house, it's Mamboche. Wow, that's very helpful. Thank you very much. And then, of course, you have Charles James, who they're contemporaries, but they perhaps could not be more different. <laughs> Timothy Long was on the show um, either last season or the season before talking about the incredible Charles James collection. The Chicago History Museum has so many wonderful pieces by him. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, about Charles James and about your collection? Yes. So Charles James, so why Charles James in the Chicago History Museum? So Charles James was actually born in London and his mother happened to be one of these Chicago debutantes. She was from a very prominent family. Um, Her name was Louise Brega. So that's where one of his middle names comes from. And when he was 18, Charles James got kicked out of school and his parents just did not know what to do with him. So they shipped him to Chicago <laughs> to, to get right, as I would like to say. And he was supposed to go work for a family friend. I think he did one day of work there and then it was like, no. And uh, from there, he actually opened, he started his fashion career and he opened um, a hat making shop here on North State Street in 1926 and became very popular. And within just a couple of years, he actually moved to New York City, I believe in 1928. But before that, he opened, I think, a couple of more stores here in Chicago. And the costume collection has actually two of his hats, I believe from 1928 in the collection. And those were actually on loan to the Mets, Charles James show when was that, 2016, 2015? I can't remember when it was, but um, those are also going to be up on our website as well. You can take a look at it there. But we have 16 garments plus the two hats designed by Charles James in our collection, plus 106 original drawings by Antonio Lopez, who is an artist who Charles James worked with closely to help preserve his legacy in his later years. So we have all of those illustrations as well up on our website. So you can see those there. And actually in 1974, um, Charles James came to the museum to examine his collections and he did a photo shoot around the museum as well. So it was, it was quite the affair. And there's <laughs> notes from him like on things. And, you know, he was kind of a diva, but, you know, he had some really interesting notes on some of the things that were given. And actually, this past year, since I've been at home mostly doing a lot of cataloging and work, I was able to locate, we have a pedal evening stole that was last seen in the mid-80s when it was boxed up before a large collection move between buildings. And I had done some digging over the months and over the months. And finally, in October, I was in our offsite area and I actually found it. And it's fabulous. It's gorgeous. It is a petal stole. So it looks kind of like the petals of a flower and it wraps around you, has one arm hole. Your arm goes through and then you wrap it around and kind of throw it over the other shoulder. <laughs> and it's red velvet with pink satin. And it's just absolutely fabulous. And I mean, that's part of why I love my job in this collection is there's this ability to surprise yourself and learn something new and 
discovery. You know, every day, especially if I could get down into collection, there's so much discovery um, and history that can be added in information. It's just a matter of getting in there and digging in. Well, and that's what's so cool about the collaboration between the curators and the collections manager is that you really do have an active role in in shaping the exhibitions. I mean, yes, you're you're working with curators and curators requesting things from you, but you're also saying, hey, right, did you consider that we have this, this, and this in our collection? Because they might not know. They don't have the extensive, you know, encyclopedic knowledge that you have of that collection and of working with it every single day. Yeah, I mean, part of what my job is, is listening to the curator and finding out the story that they want to tell with objects in an exhibit and then trying to find the objects that would best help tell that story. And, you know, my job as I'm organizing and inventorying and cataloging is I'm just mentally storing reference notes in my heads of all these different things. So, you know, when I have an outside curator send me you know, an email about, you know, a corset or this and that, something will trigger in my mind, like, have you considered this? Or what about this? Or, you know, for Silver Screen, our current curator, Virginia Haven, she wanted something glamorous that spoke to 1930s Hollywood. And she was talking about it and was referencing, you know, Ginger Rogers. And I was like, hold the phone. Because a few months earlier, having working on a, a huge inventory with some interns, we had been going through a, a section and had come upon a white dress with ostrich feathers that had been in a box for gosh knows how long, 40 years. But it had these ostrich feathers and it was from the 40s. And as soon as she referenced that, it triggered that memory up. And I pulled it out. She's like, oh my gosh, this is it exactly. And this dress was actually a copy that a opera singer had worn. And this woman had wanted that dress and had it made up in Millie B. Oppenheimer. So it was just this like weird like <laughs> thing. And we had a photo of the, you know, this, this singer wearing this at this like radio function. And it was just, but it flowed very similar to like Ginger Rogers famous, you know, dress with the ostrich feathers. And after conservation work and cleaning, you know, the brilliance of this dress came back because something that has been sitting in storage for decades needs a lot of work before it can go on exhibit. So people are always like, why aren't you guys just doing constant exhibits? You know, well, we're, we're small staff and it costs a lot of money to get all those objects in great condition, you know, and preserved and conserved so that they can go on exhibit. And, you know, it just takes a lot of time and energy. So that's why our fashion exhibits are spaced out because we need that time to pull everything and conserve it before we can put it out. Oh, yeah. I mean, exhibitions are years, sometimes decades in the making. It's pretty incredible when you start learning about these sort of behind-the-scenes stories like you're sharing now. I like to say they're the most excruciating group projects that you will ever work (laughs) on. It's like, if you don't like group projects in school, then working on exhibitions might not be what you want to do because it's a lot of people, a lot of opinions over a lot of years. And (laughs) 
it's a lot. <laughs> and you know, truly, my job is not done with an exhibition until the exhibition comes down and all the objects are put back into storage. So my job on an exhibition continues far after you know opening day. You know, it goes all the way until everything is put away, and it's so important <laughs> to put everything away properly in the right place and to know where it is exactly, and it has to be clean before it's put away. So. You know, it's not all just about the flashy stuff that happens when you put it up. It's about following all the way through to putting everything away at the very end. Very important. <laughs> More on Chicago's fashion history after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. So Jessica, there's another connection that our dress listeners might recognize between fashion and the Chicago History Museum. And that is that Chicago was the headquarters of Ebony Magazine, which of course produced the Ebony Fashion Fair. The Chicago History Museum did a wonderful exhibition on the fair. And we actually had the co-curator, Joy Bivens, on the show a few seasons back. So our listeners will have to check that out. But can you tell us about this haute couture collection at the Chicago Museum? We did this incredible exhibition called Inspiring Beauty, uh, 50 Years of the Ebony Fashion Fair, and opened in March of 2013 and closed right after I started at the museum, I believe in March of 2014. And uh, it featured 68 ensembles that all came from Johnson Publishing's collection from Ebony Fashion Fair. And after it closed at CHM, it went on to Walking Museum of Art. So they took the entire show of 68 Garments. And then after that, they cut it down to, I think, around, I think, 44 garments. And those continued to travel on for three and a half more years wow. before it finally, yes, <laughs> before it finally closed in 2018. And the museum, Chicago History Museum, none of these garments were ours. They were all part of Johnson Publishing's collection. And after the show completely closed in 2018, they donated 45 ensembles from the exhibition to our collection. Wow. So we probably have the largest single collection of um, ebony fashion fair objects left because Johnson Publishing is no more. The entire collection of that was used in Ebony Fashion Fair has been sold off. So there's no more of a collection. The photography collection from the magazine was bought by a large trust and is being put digitized and hopefully will be... Oh, wonderful. Yes. Very big um, donors went together and purchased that and I know are working to get that digitized and hopefully available to everyone at large, but we got 45 ensembles. Plus, we also have an entire run of the fashion fair pamphlets that were given out at all of those different fashion fairs. So those are in our research center at the museum. So the Chicago History Museum also has a fully functional research library. So a lot of materials that if you're interested in any fashion fair or Marshall Fields or different types of you know businesses in Chicago, you can come to our research center and um, research those things there as well. But back to the collection. So my main 
job with this exhibit has been taking it down <laughs> and putting it away and cleaning it and moving all of the mannequins, you know, offsite and um, cataloging it. So what was really great when we got this gift was that we got some amazing American designers. We didn't have a lot of African-American designers that we didn't have. Our first Alexander McQueen and Vivian Westwood came from this collection. And, you know, what's so great is that the Chicago History Museum has been able to get this collection of 45 pieces, keep them in the city of Chicago, along with all of, you know, the programs from the fashion fair and have them in one place. You know, not only did the museum put on this exhibition, but now that we, we can hold some of this history in the city still. So, you know, so much of it has been sold off as in no longer in Chicago. It's been nice to have this here. But, I mean, we have just some of the most amazing examples of pieces cleaning it is really what I could tell you about it and trying to put these things away. Um, at one point when the pieces came back in 2018 and we had to go through and clean everything, I was vacuuming by hand a Bob Mackie jacket and it was red ostrich feather. And, you know, from being on tour for almost four years, this jacket had kind of deflated you know it was kind of this you know kind of sad little jacket and by the time I was done it was like this giant Sesame Street Muppet it had just come <laughs> alive again it was this huge thing and um, my job figure out where I'm going to store all of this stuff so yes it was incredible to get all these pieces and I mean full ensembles with shoes and hats and you know jewelry and coats and all of these amazing things but then where do you put them? And that's really tough. And that's my job. And, you know, with, we had fur pieces and leather and I mean, hand dyed things, you know, feathers and all this stuff and trying to figure out, okay, I have to put the hat of this piece in cool storage and cold storage because, you know, it's fur and that's where will be best preserved but then the pants or the jacket need to go here and the jumpsuit has to lay down in a box and be fully padded out. So, <laughs> when I think about collections of this type, my mind goes to, well, let me tell you how many racks it took up and how we had to store it and that kind of thing. Um, so it's a little less glamorous, but what was really interesting and what I don't think people understand so the Ebony Fashion Fair traveled around cities all around the US and the models backstage, like at a real fashion show, had to change really quick in and out of things. And so they would be in tiny towns in Georgia or, you know, Iowa, Ohio, these kind of things, and a zipper would fall out or, you know, the a buckle would break. So, and we have this incredible leather jumpsuit and the back of it, the zipper came out. And so they went through and made Velcro tabs. So you have right. this high-end <laughs> couture outfit with all these little, like, you have a Yves Saint Laurent Quick <laughs> with like a weird zipper in it because the zipper got pulled out and they had to find whatever zipper they could and sew that in there. And if Eunice Johnson had not gone out and, you know, she went to Paris and to Milan and to New York City and bought couture. I mean, high end, the most amazing pieces of fashion she could get to bring back for this fashion show. But because she did that, because she got the best, you know, design pieces, these fashion objects 
have been able to last and be put up because, you know, not only were they on exhibition for four years, beyond that, they were stored in a, you know, less than ideal circumstances at Johnson Publishing for <laughs> decades. And then they were on, on models' bodies being taken on and off, ripped on and off, on and off and being traped on and all this kind of stuff. So because they were made out of the best leather, silks, all that stuff, these pieces are still around and exist even though they have been worn over and over again. You know, if it was a regular off-the-rack type of piece, it wouldn't be able to survive. So that's, I mean, I think that really speaks to the incredible workmanship of a lot of these couture pieces from designers from all over the world, not just from Paris. And just the level of, the high level of fashion that Eunice Johnson was able to get is just incredible. And here as well, we will end part one of this two-part episode. And, and, you know, we must point out that not everything in the Chicago History Museum's collection is you know, French or Parisian haute couture. And on Thursday, Jessica will be back to share some more stories behind the incredible pieces in the Chicago History Museum, including their collection of garments made by one of our favorite American designers, Elizabeth Keckley. And of course, we've already done an episode about her in season one, so you can check that out. But in the meantime, you can also check out our past Chicago History Museum-related episodes, you know, with exhibition curators Timothy Long on Charles James and also Joy Bivens on the Ebony Fashion Fair. And of course, check out this collection for yourself on chicagohistory.org, where they have not only their dress collection or pieces from their dress collection, but they have millions of photographs of everyday life in Chicago. And if you want to follow along with Jessica's unboxing finds at the Chicago History Museum, you have to check out her Instagram at Jessica underscore Pusher. That's P-U-S-H-O-R. Where alongside pictures of Poochie and Worth gowns, you can also find amazing images of her rescue pug, Violet, dogs in fashion. <laughs> For the win, April, considering your little Clementines asleep at your feet right now or nipping at your feet right now. I think this is something we definitely condone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you guys ever kind of hear me being distracted on the podcast it might be because we're trying to record and the pets are up to up to no good (laughs) (laughs) which has been happening a lot today but that does it for us today dress listeners may you consider the legacy of chicago's fashion history next time you get dressed We love hearing from you all. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. Or alternately, you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. And of course, we will post images from, you know, Chicago History Museum's fashion collection on our Instagram this week. And you can also follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. If you have a moment and you would like to take the time to rate and review us on the podcast listening platform of your choice, we would very much appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dressed on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.